You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Welcome to the show, listeners. Starting off with uh, an announcement that our 127th annual dinner is on again this Tuesday, September the 4th. We have Dr. Cameron Murray presenting on housing policy fraud, an Australian story. More about that at the uh, end of the interview. But before that, uh, goodness me, Daniel Andrews is rubbing salt into the wounds an article on macrobusiness.com.au, they're uh, referencing The Australian, where uh, Andrews has uh, forewarned a speech uh, he's giving today, warning against further privatisations, austerity, and what he calls free market for all type economics. Well, goodness me, here he is privatising the land titles registry which in a property-owning democracy is akin to privatising the police force. And here he is saying, oh, we're the good guys. We're not going to do that. Well, if the Libs had tried this, uh, I dare say we would have had more support in our campaign to stop the privatisation of who owns what land. There is an incredible property data gold rush going on around the world. And I'm hoping in uh, the coming weeks to bring you more of that story because uh, it's just so valuable to know the market trends before the rest of the uh, market and to act with that information before your competitors. That's the value of the land titles registry and uh, the, the valuations that go with that. And talking the land titles registry privatisation, Hopefully you saw uh, the article that myself and my colleague Jesse Hermans were quoted in. The uh, Business Age was the lead article and we were the main quotes uh, as we discussed the property data goldmine that is uh, coming through the system alongside the the bare basics that uh, the economics behind this privatisation just do not add up. It will cost us some $60 million a year to privatise it rather than selling government bonds to the market uh, at, at half the cost, basically. So yet again, privatisation doesn't add up. And here's Daniel Andrews saying, trust me, I don't privatise things. Well, both sides of politics are sold down the river, aren't they? So not only... Uh, as Andrew's privatised that and the ports, but he's also signing off on PPP deals worth $4 billion to private road construction companies to fix up the roads. I've only just become aware of that one. I wonder what tentacles are uh, lancing their way through that agreement. Uh, the article I read suggested there could well be roadside advertising to pay for these repairs. Goodness knows if there's any quality control on those repairs. That's what concerns me so often. These potholes get filled and a couple of weeks later they're there again. More funds, more profits for uh, those roadside companies. Now a bit of uh, background to today's interview. The new economics movement. It's a term that's been around now for a couple of decades and uh, 
Just a reminder, it's all about uh, those willing to criticise the state of economics and uh, and demand for uh, the inclusion of ecological economics, uh, the solidarity economy. Dare we say the commons? That must include land, you'd think, wouldn't you, listeners? Uh, degrowth, systems thinking, all these reform ideas have uh, been lumped together under the banner of the new economic movement. Let's go to today's interview as uh, we question the validity of economics from a student's perspective. week I thought we'd take a uh, another little angle into life on earth by talking to Jack Cameron who's a third year undergrad in his Bachelor of Business. He's also working as a banking analyst and has done a bit of work in the alternative economics uh, space as well. So Jack, uh, welcome to the show. Hey Carl, look thanks for inviting me on here. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, I just really wanted to get a young person's perspective on uh, the state of economics and cross-reference that with what you're learning at university. Yeah, well, look, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because I guess my perception of economics is constantly changing. And I mean, the the interesting reality with learning economics at university is that, I mean, any economist will tell you that uh, theory and practice when it comes to economics are two vastly different concepts. What I'm learning in class specifically doesn't often translate to the real world, at least in the ways you think it should. Yeah, that really is the big issue, isn't it, with economics, that uh, it hasn't modernised. It's uh, supposedly a social science, but it seems more stuck in the world of ideology. How does uh, your professor approach those contrasting pressures? Before I say this, I'll preface it by saying that I guess from the outside, a lot of universities might look, you know, uh, liberal uh, in the American sense. But I think what is a great aspect of university is that you don't have one monotonous or one constant theme or opinion throughout your professors. You know, so each professor have different takes on, on you know, the, the economy and the world around us and, and what's going to happen in general. I will say that... Ironically enough, my interest in economics led me to my degree, and then I struggled a little bit with the, I guess, the inability to correlate what I was learning in class with theory and the world around me uh, so much, so that I I moved over to more of the mathematics behind economics. So I actually find myself in statistics more so than economics these days. Are there any classes within your degree that uh, look at uh, the new economics movement or any of these sort of shortfalls that, uh, you know, some, goodness me, what is it? It can't be, God, it's 30 years since I did my <laughs> economics degree, but, you know, there was no knowledge of the post-autistics economic movement. You know, before you even started your economics degree, had you heard of these shortfalls with the economics profession in that uh, we have issues like uh, the, the 2008 meltdown and, you know, the Queen writing to uh, uh, the Bank of England saying, why on earth did uh, these thousands of economists you employ, why did no one tell us this was coming? 
doesn't really seem to have been much uh, uh, progress within the sandstone walls of the established university since then, but uh, were you aware of this before you started studying? I mean, to an extent, I was aware of, uh, you know, large crises that uh, had happened. I didn't really have a great understanding of the ins and outs of them. Before starting my degree and what got me into it in the first place, I was reading a lot of books by Friedrich Hayek, the old Austrian economist, um, libertarian, and also Milton Friedman, which on many accounts have differing perceptions. So I guess upon coming into my degree, I did have a recognition that you know economics wasn't an exact science, and it was, I guess at the end of the day, it's a... It's a a group of models and theories as to how humans operate collectively. And that's not always going to be right, especially when these things are based on psychology. So, you know, I didn't I didn't come into my degree knowing the ins and outs of, you know, the financial crisis and, and why economists get things wrong. I guess I came into it hoping that I would be able to build a better understanding of, you know, how these things operate, um, how they come about. And what I can do, I guess, you know, uh, as an individual and, and how I can change things. It is a, uh, a pretty tall order for economists to think they know how the world runs, but one of the big limitations has been the world of modelling and uh, you with your econometrics focus. Uh, how are you seeing the uh, evolution of statistical measures and modelling? And, uh, you know, the, the world of uh, computational power is pretty incredible now. Uh, where, where's the edge of, uh, of the modelling these days? Look, one quote, and I'm not sure who I contributed to, but one quote I always remember is that there's no such thing as a real model or a true model, only a better model. Uh, and I guess through that, it's just trying to say that you're never going to be able to model the reality and, and have the outcomes as predicted. And then to an extent, that is not the intention when it comes to modeling. It's It's to find, you know, a general path or, or use the data as indication of what's going to happen with with, a, with you know confidence intervals and prediction intervals so you can have some degree of flexibility. It's not to have a you know an exact answer to what's going to happen. So that's my experience in modeling and uh, I mean Within the modeling world alone, within statistics, there's always the disparity between the forecasters and the econometricians. And, and I guess within the stock market world, you might say that that is the difference between the fundamental and the technical analysis folks. You have forecasting models that look just off uh, previous states and the calculus of it, and then you have econometrics models that look at the uh, the variables within something. And the interesting reality is that both of them get it right and both of them get it wrong. And is there much understanding as to whether the ones that uh, get it more right are tied up on, in particular ideological perspectives? I mean, Friedman and Hayek uh, have a preference for... Uh, low taxation of capital. And so that that's a real problem I have is that uh, 
we have these ideological hang-ups that don't reflect reality so well and then when things go wrong we still maintain those preferences uh, because <laughs> we're supporting that footy team. Coming into the degree that I have right now, it really makes you question why we still do, uh, you know, barracks for these teams, so to speak, and why we do keep reverting back to these old uh, mechanisms, especially the economic mechanisms that we use, and why aren't we looking at new and better approaches to things and that to me is a logical path to take people to the new economics movement and to, to looking at, you know, more human-centered economics. CR's Renegade Economist. This week uh, we're talking with Jack Cameron, a third-year undergraduate and a Bachelor of Business at my old alma mater at uh, Monash University. And Jack, uh, an area of, of modelling that is moving forward and, and one of the big criticisms of economics is that uh, everything is the general equilibrium model of supply and demand is taken at a point in time. But by the time you've drawn that graph, uh, done that modelling, it's virtually out of date. And so this form of uh, dynamic modelling is coming through that encourage, that basically allows for changes over time and incorporates that into the feedback loops. Uh, how far down that uh, rabbit warren are you, Jack? <laughs> uh, well, there, there has been exposure to dynamic modelling within my degree, it's complex. And I guess one issue and with modeling is that the more complex the model, the less applicable it tends to be in the real world. And what I mean by that is that you can, you can fit an infinitely complex model to your data set and you know, be able to predict with every value your data set correctly, but once you go and try and forecast into the future or look at a data point that's outside your set, complex models tend to fall apart. So that, to me, is the balancing act when looking at these complex dynamic models, um, though I do think that it's necessary, especially rather than looking at a static model, uh, I think that data is outdated. Jack, let's step back and uh, look at the macro perspective. Uh, as a student coming through, uh, what excites you about the future? What's what's coming through that gets you uh, up and into it every day? Uh, I guess in the general sense of the economy and, and I guess the country we live in, I'm, I'm excited by this movement of sustainable businesses and especially social enterprises. I think that the movement of social enterprise, which is relatively new in the past, I think, few decades, uh, I think that this will be the way going forward for organizations looking to make a social impact in our world. And I'm really excited to see how they transform and manifest. Yeah, certainly the, uh, the B Corporation movement and so forth is uh, where, where it's happening and uh, people showing 
living the change rather than talking about it seems to be uh, something that's here to stay, which is certainly exciting. Now, I always swore that I'd have a party when I finished paying off my hex fees, and for some unknown reason, I, n- I never did. I only paid them off a few years ago. But, uh, God, just just humour me. Tell me, what are you looking at um, for an undergraduate degree? What sort of hex debt will you have at the end of your study period? Yeah, well, look, for Bachelor of Business, it's around $27,500. You know, that's purely for the class taken, not including any of the university's extra fees or student amenities fees. And that doesn't include, you know, any classes you might fail or classes that, you know, you might want to change from your degree. Uh, I know, for example, I, I took a couple of French classes and then realized that I didn't have uh, enough room to take the classes that I wanted to, so I had to remove them, uh, which ultimately you know, increased the cost of my degree. In short, my answer for you is far too much money. And then honours, um, what will that end up? Honours is another extra, um, I think it's a, that's a good question, you know, I really should know this one. Um, it's it's more expensive than a standard year. I believe it's around fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. Wow! So you're probably going to end up owing what uh, people in the eighties used to buy uh, for a house. We've got this situation at the moment where the basically there are more people retiring now than there are entering the working age. So the tax burden on your generation and those that follow will be higher than preceding generations. So where do do you sit on that front? Uh, Are young people really getting fired up about what's happening on the world of intergenerational inequity? Uh, It should be. I think that's always the, the, the standard generational turn down where you know, each subsequent generation blames the previous for mm. you know, the inequities and inequalities. Um, not to say that it's misplaced. I, I think that just in general, these, these issues are complex and it's difficult to develop a well-rounded perception of uh, what goes into tax, what, what is, constitutes fair tax and what's going to happen when the you know, labor labor force participation or the or the retiree rates increases, especially if you don't have, you know, a, an interest in the field or or a passion for economics. So, it's tough to really expect all my peers to be making a racket about this if a lot of them don't understand that it's happening and and why it's happening and why it's bad. Yeah, this sense of disempowerment, uh, I always say, uh, how much economic pain can people take before they recognise they've got to actually do something? They've got to write letters, they've got to do callback, they've got to speak to MPs. We need protests. Yes, you know, I remember uh, Chris Richardson from Access Economics a few years ago saying, look, I just cannot believe how badly Gen X, Y and Z are getting ripped off and how willing they are to take it. <laughs> it's it's ballistic, but I suppose that's what happens uh, in a world where somehow we can all afford iPhones and, 
You know, we've got the bank of mum and dad sort of in the background for the lucky ones and uh, those who are disempowered, who are perhaps surrounded by uh, the Murdoch press don't have that level of critical analysis to take things forward. I think that the issue is that for the most part, people don't know anything else. You know, at least my generation, you know, we don't, we, I, I guess I'm speaking for myself and not for everybody, but... Like, I've never been involved in, well, I have been involved in a protest, but I, I have never been involved in a large um, movement for change, and, and I guess I don't have a conception of how plausible that is. You know, I, mean, I, I don't know how much that's happened in the past, but I think that the interesting environment we're in right now is that we we kind of fed information, and we're fed, I guess, not just information, but we're kind of told what's happening. And it's almost as though we don't have an opportunity to change it. Maybe we don't know how. And these scrolling bubbles as we scroll through our feeds on on our devices, uh, we're surrounded by people who think the same. So uh, it's, it's not like you go to a bar anymore and you meet a wise old head who uh, tells you a few stories. Um, God, every time I go out somewhere, uh, people almost fall over when I try to have a chat with someone I don't actually know. My goodness. Let alone have a chat about something to do with economics or politics. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, when I was studying there, Jack, I, you know, after about the 3,000th time I told people I was studying economics, I started saying I was studying modern warfare. And people would go, what? Said, yeah, there's this crazy invisible hand that sneaks into your wallet and grabs all your money. And they're like, what? You run it on for a few more minutes and then finally tell them economics. And they go, what is that what it's about? <laughs> But yeah, okay, Jack. Well, um, yeah, good to have you on the show and good to hear your perspectives. Hopefully uh, we can see some some modelling that reflects uh, the value of the earth somewhere in the future. And, uh, yeah, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Carl. Okay, well, maybe I pushed a few buttons there on Mr. Jack Cameron. Let's see what eventuates. But uh, hmm, the world of radical thought in universities since uh, the union funding has been cut back. Uh, let's hope it still exists. Uh, here I am as an old man uh, commenting on this. Uh, I really know nothing what's going on. But, uh, yeah, for, ha- for youngsters... Uh, I'm just scratching my head looking at what the government has done uh, around the nation. Uh, state governments have uh, a lot to answer for because first home buyers have uh, jumped from 12 to 18% of all loans taken out. They're up 22% over the last year, whereas investors, they've been wisely uh, shown the door and they're down by some 16%. And of course, I'm talking about the first home buyer's stamp duty discount, something I've been talking about since 2013. (sighs) Goodness me, when the Liberals introduced that back then, what it's done is uh, basically encouraged youngsters to jump into the market right at the end of this uh, economic cycle You hear uh, every weekend virtually that the auction clearance rates are down uh, around the 50, 60%. 
my fingers are crossed. My uh, my dad's selling his house this weekend. Will he get his price? We will see. But uh, yeah, at least he's not selling this time next year and into 2020 when we're suspecting that there will be some sort of correction. I'm not sure it's going to be any massive super bust, but uh, because population growth rates are just too high and policymakers uh, are, are so uh, proactive now in maintaining virtually our last known industry, uh, real estate speculation and the housing construction that underlies that. But over up in Sydney, rents are actually starting to fall there. The supply mantra is uh, delivering something in that uh, a few areas uh, rents are actually starting to drop, which is a sign that uh, prices will continue to drop there. So uh, that is some good news for youngsters in Australia, Brisbane and Perth. According to SQM Marketing, uh, the market's going to plateau along there. The, the big downturn has already occurred. We will see, but... Uh, yeah, I, here in Victoria, I'm just flabbergasted that uh, this first home buyer stamp duty discount, which applies to any property under $600,000, has led to all of these youngsters, uh, probably those who live and breathe the Murdoch Press, going out and buying in those areas. And from that, in areas like Melton South and a number of suburbs around Geelong, such as Corio, uh, Melton South. Prices have increased 34.2% in the last year. Corio, 29.6%. Whole pile of suburbs there listed in the age you'll find in our show notes. Around about uh, 30% increases in New South Wales or closer to 20% increases. So uh, people buying at the wrong time. Hopefully prices don't start to plummet in those areas next year and these people are left underwater. If that happens, there's going to be a lot of angry people and you just wonder whether this world of policy fraud can be called to account. Dear lawyers, can we ever sue governments for policies that are blatantly incorrect and uh, knowingly implemented to keep the macro economy moving, to keep the political chances of the government of the day in power, despite the fact that a lot of people will be stung. It really is uh, so frustrating that uh, this sort of housing fraud continues. And uh, I'm winding this towards uh, the big announcement that our 127th annual dinner is coming up on Tuesday, September the 4th at the Brunswick Mess Hall. We have Dr. Cameron Murray, the author of A Game of Mates, uh, the breakout book of 2017, giving the presentation called Housing Policy Fraud, An Australian Story. You've heard a lot of it here on The Renegades, but uh, Dr. Murray, uh, for anyone who's ever seen a, a Beautiful Mind or read much about uh, John Nash and his game theory, well, that is how he is uh, detecting trends through society by the strength of these social networks. It's fascinating how he puts this argument together. So, yeah, it would be lovely to see you all. 
We're actually going to do something that during my time has not been done, and that is to have a group photo for the record books on our 127th annual dinner. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Check out earthsharing.org.au for the show notes and also uh, plenty of good material coming through on prosper.org.au. All right, stay sane.